Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listeners, for those of you who've listened to the podcast for a while, you'll know that I have a deep fascination with nautical mysteries. One of the mysteries I have been most interested in over the years is the strange disappearance of three lighthouse keepers off a remote island in northwest Scotland. In December of 1900, in the Flannan Islands on Eileen Moor, three lighthouse keepers, James Ducott, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur, vanished in stormy weather and without a trace off the remote northwest coast of Scotland. Some of you are probably already familiar with this mystery. It's been popularized in mainstream entertainment. The movie The Vanishing is probably one of the more popular and prominent takes on this mystery. There are a lot of legends surrounding the disappearances, and it's hard to discern fables from fact. Theories range that the men perished due to supernatural forces inhabiting the island since pre-Christian times. Others think maybe a conflict broke out between the men, and they murdered each other in a rage. And finally, another major theory is that some think they were blown over the side of the cliff in a gale or swept away by a giant wave during the raging storm. I was lucky enough to speak with Keith McCloskey, author of The Lighthouse, The Mystery of the Eileen Moore Lighthouse Keepers. Keith's book is a tremendously gripping narrative rooted in his original historical research. Keith has written many books on aviation history and other mysteries, including a book on the Diet Law of Past Mystery. You can check out his work on his website at keithmccloskey.com. You can also find him on Facebook on his author page as Keith McCloskey, and I've linked to all of his social and his websites in the description. I'm incredibly grateful Keith agreed to come on the podcast and walk me through the unexplained circumstances surrounding the three missing lighthouse keepers on Eileen Moore. Here's my conversation with Keith. And for today's sake, uh, we're going to talk about the book that I recently read, The Lighthouse, The Mystery of the Eileen Moore Lighthouse Keepers. It's something that I, being again, being a fan of mystery as well, have uh, known about. Uh, I think I saw that that movie with Gerard Butler a, a long time ago, uh, something that's been very popularized. But I, I was looking for a book because I'm, I'm a big reader, and I came across your book, uh, and I uh, got the chance to delve into it a few weeks ago. And I was riveted uh, with it. And I'm curious, like, how? I mean, I think you're probably pretty local proximity geography wise to that story. But how did you come across it? And what made you decide to want to write a book about it? Well, it's, it's, uh, I used to live in Edinburgh, which is where the 
headquarters of the national uh, the um, lighthouse board was in, in Scotland, the not the the Northern Lighthouse Board, the NLB, and um, I have a, I have a good friend, and his brother lived actually. Not far. They lived on Lewis, which is the nearest island to the Flannans. It's the main island of the Hebrides off the northwest coast of Scotland. And they had told me about it many years ago. I don't actually forgotten all about it, but uh, I sort of remembered it when I was reading through a book of various mysteries. It was mentioned in that, and I thought well, it was that nobody had really gone into it because there's so many. Uh, well, what's the word? Myths about it, if you like which we can talk about in a minute. Um, I wanted to get to the bottom of what had actually happened. And so I started looking at it, and um, I'd, uh, I'd been working with a, a film crew on the Discovery Channel. Who, who, you know, we'd covered the Dyatlov story, and they, they were asking if I, you know, if I had any other ideas on mysteries i told them about this one and uh we we went up there uh became one of the episodes on the the, the uh, unexplained files uh which you know appears on time to time on the discovery channel which covered it pretty well and we actually went out onto elon moore and uh filmed out there that's incredible. And before we get into the the mystery of the disappearance of those three lighthouse keepers, I kind of wanted to get a sense because, you know, obviously I could tell you you're from the area, you know the area, you've seen the area, you've been there. I'm wondering for the listener who's maybe listening who, who you know, doesn't know that part of, of Scotland uh, and the UK, like, can you describe the geography of the Flannan Isles and Eileen Moore? Like, what's it like? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's uh, it's very, very remote. It's as remote as you'll get in the British Isles, uh, apart from maybe the Shetland Islands, which are much further north. But the, the Flannans are off the northwest. They're about 20 miles offshore uh, off the, the uh, Hebrides up there. And it's... Uh, the, the next stop after that is North America. You know, it's, it really is remote, and it's probably the most remote lighthouse that the uh, the NLB have up there. Um, they're all automated now, but it was quite a... I suppose a lot of lighthouses are in bleak areas, if you like, but, uh, but the Flannans and Neil and Moore are, are about as remote as you'll get. They're basically seven very small rocky islands just sticking out of the water um the largest of them is elon moore and uh it's it's about 40 acres um i'm not sure if, if you use that over there but uh there's about 16 acres of grass which on, on top of the island which is a, it's a, it's a the size of a few football pitches if you like and um, it, it, the main island sticks out about 280 feet above sea level, so it's it goes up quite a bit, and it's sheer rock faces. They've had to carve steps out uh, into the rock to be able to get to the top. Um, and and the weather is the other thing about it. It's it's const in the, especially in winter. It's constant bad weather. You know yeah. You have uh, the the wind sweeping in from the Atlantic, huge waves, and it's constant. Uh, I remember a meteorologist said to me that 
um, December, January, February up there. It's, it's just storms and nothing else. So you can imagine what it must have been like living there, you know, manning one of these places, just constant bad weather and nothing really to look at other than the rock you were on. Quite a hard life. Yeah, yeah. remote, isolated, like really, really rough terrain to to be in, let alone inhabit. So, you know, what was the need for a lighthouse then? Like, why was one needed to be built? You know, when was it built? That sort of thing. Yeah, well, the, the, uh, the, the it was one of the last lighthouses to be built up there, and the, there's a chain of them around the whole coast. And the the um, really in the, in those days they needed, you know, these days you've got GPS and everything's automated. But in those days, it, it was a real danger. Rocks were always a real danger. I mean, they they still are now if you if your equipment goes. But um, it was one of the last lighthouses to be built uh, uh, in Scotland, and it filled a gap between on on the, that northwest sector. Uh, but the other thing about it was it was basically seven rocks, and there was no way to warn shipping to to avoid them. So it, it had been suggested in the early in 1853, I think they'd originally suggested putting a, a lighthouse there, but it was to be another 40 years before they got round to building it. I don't know why, whether there was financial reasons or the, the other thing about it, of course, is to build a lighthouse on a rock like that involves having to take all the material out and then haul it up the cliffs. Uh, you know, whilst they were building the steps. So it wasn't an easy place to build a lighthouse, but there was definitely a need for it because of uh, the danger to shipping from these seven rocks. And um, it was eventually all became operational in 7th of December, 1899, um, which was a year before the three men disappeared. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, that struck me when I was reading the book that I couldn't believe how close the disappearance of the men were to the lighthouse being finished were they were those three men the original keepers i can't remember yes yes they were right. yeah they were all hand-picked for the job um the way it worked was you had a principal it was a four-man station and you had four light keepers there was a principal he was assisted by three um what was called alks the uh assistant light light keepers the, the principal's word was law, uh, but what happened? What happens with a four-man station is one man is always on leave. You know, you do your 28 days and then you go on leave. So it's basically a three-man station, but with a rotating fourth person who's always on holiday or leave, if you like, and... Uh, but you'll only have three three men on the station. And what had happened there was there was one man, Joseph Moore, was on leave uh, ashore, and uh, one of the, the other three keepers was involved in quite a nasty accident there. He'd uh, injured himself quite badly. On They had trolleys there, and uh, he'd lost control of a trolley and had been thrown off it and uh, injured his shoulder, and he was off sick. So they had to bring in what they call an occasional, which is uh, somebody local who they bring in to act 
just as a, an extra help in, in the place of the person who's sick or, or away. So it was really two experienced keepers and this occasional who was called Don, Donald MacArthur. Um, and as I say, we'll come on to there was a bit more to say about this occasional as uh, he, he lived locally, but um, you know he had uh, he was a, a certain type of character, shall we say? I think that's a good jumping in point um, to the actual men. Uh, you mentioned Donald MacArthur, who's the the occasional, probably with what I would say. I don't know if I want to use the word volatile, but maybe difficult temperament out of all the men. Volatile is how he was described by one of his descendants. Um, he, was, he was known to be volatile, if you like. He was a, a strange character because he'd been in the army and um, he'd, he'd come up from... Uh, I mean, he was from that area, but he'd he'd, he'd been down south in in England with the army, and he'd moved left the army and he'd moved back to Lewis, where you know he was from. But uh, he'd, he'd got married, but he was known as a drinker, and but at the same time, he also did work for the church. You know, as uh, a lot of them probably there was, it was a very religious area, but. Um, you know, you you had two sides to his character, but then a lot of people would drink in in the, these areas anyway. Uh, you know, d- 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 drinking was almost a national pastime in Scotland anyway. Um, but but he had a, a temper, and um, it leads on, as I say, when we go into the theories of what may have happened because because of it, you weren't allowed alcohol, and they, there wasn't any alcohol available when you were on duty on these stations. So it's it's not like he was drinking there. Let's talk about, yeah, I think we should talk about the other two men, Thomas Marshall and James Ducat. James, he, he, he'd had his, all his, spent all his career in, in the lighthouse service and um, he had been handpicked by the uh, superintendent for the, you know, for that position there. Uh, his daughter had said that he didn't really want to take it because he was a married man and with four children, and they had to stay on the shore station. Uh, some lighthouses, you could have your family living with you at the lighthouse, but because this was uh, on the rocks, twenty miles offshore, you couldn't you couldn't have a family there because you know obviously with children needing school and and um, it, it, it just wouldn't have been practical, but. He had a lot of experience, uh, James Duckett and uh, no, Ducat, and um, he he was handpicked to be the principal there. Uh, Thomas Marshall was younger, you know. Uh, the principal uh, Ducat was probably in, I think he was in mid forties, late uh, early to mid forties. Uh, Thomas Marshall was a younger man; he'd only been three years in the service, and um, he was in his, I think he was twenty nine. But he was a large, sort of solid man when you look at his pictures, um, and apparently quite a placid temperament from what I what I've heard from his descendants. Um, so the the <clears throat> the, the other th- the other thing I should mention is in those days, especially the principal uh, keeper in a lighthouse. His word was law. Um, he decided the jobs that were done. 
if he said something that that was that was probably a bit like a a small town sheriff i suppose with the authority he had um he was not a man to get on the wrong side of although james Ducat wasn't an unpleasant character but it was taken that the principal light keeper was the man you, you had to follow his orders or you were out uh, he even decided what they would eat you know on a daily basis so um he, he ruled the roost if you like and then what about uh thomas marshall can you give me a little bit of background on him he wasn't married he was um a single man and he'd only been just a short while in the uh in the service you know he hadn't been long in it um he he he, uh, he had been looking after his father which was a bone of contention later on because when he disappeared um there was no um compensation paid to his father his father was 70 and had been a seaman and uh, he basically you know had no income and he'd relied on Thomas Marshall uh, really to, to look after him and relied on his wages, if you like. Um, I mean, it, was, it wasn't a phenomenal wage, but it, but it was a steady wage. And the other thing about being a lie keeper is you didn't have to pay for housing because that was already provided. So he tended to be more of... Um, a family man in the sense of looking after his father, uh, but he wasn't married. But he had a very placid um, temperament, you know, easygoing character, you know, a gentle giant, if you like, because he was quite a large, solid build, you know, quite a strong man, but um, not not a, an unpleasant character particularly. Yeah, when I was reading the book, it kind of struck me um, that Marshall and Duckett or Ducat would be probably in this story the protagonists, whereas MacArthur would have been the antagonist. Like that's that's how I got the impression. Marshall and Ducat were, um, you know, a bit more virtuous and seemed like guys who were, um, you know, like one of them's taking care of his father, the other's got a family, uh, and MacArthur seems yeah. a bit more like a, a, a hothead. So that's kind of how I interpret it. Is that pretty fair? You've got it in one. Yeah, you've got it in one. I mean, um, MacArthur had family as well, uh, you know, but uh, he didn't have the temperament of the other two. He was um, very, well, volatile is the word. He had a temper as well, which came out with drink and what have you. Um, you know, I don't want to paint him as a entirely bad man, but... Uh, he, he was, uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily have described him as a troublemaker either, but he was somebody who <clears throat> you would be wary of with his temper. Now, I think I want to set the scene here uh, as we delve into the mystery. When when do the men get on the island? Like, when do they start? It's earlier in the year, right? Yeah, well, the, the lighthouse became operational on the 7th of December, uh, um, 1899. And we're talking now the disappearance in December 1900. Um, almost, uh, well, it, it was uh, one one year and uh, one week and one day from the date it became operational. But bearing in mind that it would have been Thomas Marshall and James Ducat who were there from the beginning 
MacArthur was only brought in as an occasional in the October. He'd been only he'd, he'd only been with them for two two and a half months, basically. When you were researching and writing the book, did you get a sense of what the men's relationship and and what the atmosphere was like leading up to December of nineteen hundred? Like, you know, I mean, I know it's tough work to begin with, but you know, is there a lot of conflict between them? You know, were you able to discern that through your research? Like, was it pretty mundane? They were just going about doing their business. You, you've raised the point, actually. The, the thing is about about people have a romantic view of the life of a lighthouse keeper. Yeah, it might be for some people, but it's just mundane, day to day living. Um, you, you you had to get on with the people you were working. I mean. We didn't have to get on with them, but life would become very, very hard if you didn't get on with them, if they irritated you. You know, it's, you can imagine yourself if you... It's not like you finished at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock and then you went home to your own house and, and you lived in a, you know, a town or a city. You were, you were stuck on, on this rock, if you like, and... and um, you know, and it was the the work was the same every day. You know, I was cleaning and getting the light ready to switch on and, at night. And and the shift it was the, the between the three keepers, they they would each take a, a shift of four hours throughout the night to uh, maintain the light. And um, you know, the the food wasn't exactly you you would get food delivered once every four weeks and uh, it would have to keep you going so it's not like there was, there was a, a fantastic you know like on a nuclear submarine i suppose you know they're, they're, they're apparently the food's supposed to be quite good but in, in these days you, it was just about your basics and um long last so long lasting food that would keep so it, it wasn't a great life at all um and the other thing about macarthur he was uh, an occasional would come on. He w- he would be called to step in and stand in for somebody who was ill, as William Ross was, and he would expect to probably be there just for a couple of weeks, uh, maybe two, maybe three weeks. Whereas, and and he had been on there without a break uh, from from uh, mid middle of October right into December. So, and even a normal normal keeper would have had his leave after 28 days. And here's a guy who's not even getting paid as much as the rest of them and having to do a lot of the skivvy-type work. Um, and he's still there after two months. And he had, his, he had to look after his own croft, which needed maintenance, although his wife probably could have done some of it. But, you know, he had his own worries ashore so you have to see things from his point of view so i would think and and from what i could read between the lines is he was probably getting quite annoyed at being stuck there um and when the uh, other keeper joseph moore returned from leave um it possibly wasn't even to let him go either so he, he he just had no end in sight until the man he was replacing, who was William Ross, who'd injured himself, came back. So he, he was looking at possibly another month. So three months without a break of any kind probably was starting to 
push him to the limits. I want to just set the scene. It's December 1900. The weather is horrible. Like, it's very stormy. Um, that's something that you, you see throughout the book. Can you give me a bit of context on that? Like, how, how big of a storm are we talking? Like, it, it's not just like a, a one or two day thing. This thing is raging for, for quite a while, right? Well, I got all the weather reports from the, um, the the Met Office here in the UK. They're down in Exeter, and uh, I've put them all, all the days leading up to what happened and the days afterwards. You know, I'll put all of what the weather was like every day there, so anybody looking at the book can see it. But, um, but yeah, it storms constantly. Um, what happened on the day that they disappeared was in the morning they uh, the weather was there was showers and blustery wind and what happened was that that was about nine o'clock in the morning and from that then on the weather got steadily worse and it built up until by and, and fairly quickly by by six o'clock of that day six o'clock in the early evening it was force nine, which is a strong gale uh, with waves of uh, up to 32 feet. Um, strong winds, constant rain, um, really the sort of weather where you wouldn't want to go out in it, which is partly what leads into the mystery because uh, I've spoken to a number of lighthouse keepers, including two who were based on the Flannans. There's very few of these people left now anywhere. Um, and they, they, all the lighthouse keepers that, I, that I've spoken to, and I had one who was actually a good friend of mine, um, who I met through aviation history circles, but he, he, he told me that when the weather is bad, you stayed in because you're putting yourself at risk, especially on a, a high rocky island. You can... You know, you can come to grief, especially when, when the strong winds as well. It's not, it's not just the waves because the winds can blow you off a cliff. And, and I've said this in, in virtually every interview I've done. That uh, friend of mine who'd been a lighthouse kid, he spent his whole life on, on lighthouses up in Scotland. Uh, I've, I've mentioned it, like I say, in every interview. He was quite a large man he was he was about six foot two six foot three and he weighed about 230 pounds which is 16 nearly 17 stone uh, he was carrying a fridge between his between the actual lighthouse and his cottage and the wind lifted him off his feet uh, with the fridge, the, the the wind caught. The, it was a strong, very strong wind that day, and he said it just lifted him and carried him. So, yeah, the, especially out on the Flannans, the, the wind would have been very strong. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So, you know, and again, we're leading on into what actually happened on the day that they disappeared. But just coming back to the weather, the one thing I wanted to say was that day they disappeared, yes, a storm was building. It, got, it didn't get to storm force, it got to gale force nine, which is a very strong gale. Big waves, very strong winds but what happened two days later was an almost a hurricane and that is what is reckoned to have caused all the damage on the landing uh, when the superintendent wrote his report after the disappearance apparently chunks of earth had been torn out of the the, the top of the the cliffs there and um the, the railings had been pulled out of the concrete, and he even he admitted that that probably happened two days after the men disappeared, as it was a, it was all it was a storm just below hurricane force. There's a lot of wind, a lot of rain. Um, what we do know is is that for whatever reason, and I know you go through this in the book a little bit, and we don't have to walk through it in too much detail, but I think we we need to talk yeah. about why, at some point. The lighthouse keepers leave the lighthouse. They leave the safety and the refuge of the lighthouse. What do we know about that final day and why they had to leave the lighthouse and what, what may have happened in, in that course of events? The lighthouse was empty when the, the relief finally arrived. Um, and the, the, there's all sorts of myths about what was found uh, or when... when they went in, the, uh, the first man in there was Joseph Moore, the relief. Um, there was nothing amiss, you know, every, everything was in its place. They'd had lunch, apparently, and washed up, and uh, that was all lying on the counter. But uh, but there was no knocked-over chair, There was the, the fire had gone out, the clock had stopped. But what they found was that the outside gear of Marshall and Ducat was missing, the oil skins and their sea boots were gone from where they kept them on the rack and the coat hanger in, in the kind of hallway before you go out of the lighthouse. Um, but the outside gear of MacArthur was still there, but none of the three men were there. So what it looked, what the, the conclusions that were drawn was that Although MacArthur was missing as well, but he wasn't wearing any outside gear. The other two were. 
And the strange thing about it is that they put their outside gear on after lunch, and it must have been after two o'clock um, to go out, which, which, again, lighthouse men I spoke to said highly unusual to do that because the afternoon you did all your chores in the morning inside or outside and afternoons were for, for everybody to rest ready to switch on the light because each of them would have to be on duty throughout that night so you know you, you all three of them would have been resting after lunch in the afternoon ready to start the night shift why they went out nobody knows um and what makes it stranger is that MacArthur had gone out or disappeared in without his outside gear on. You know, it's December, it's cold, it's wet, and high winds, rain. So it's It's not only strange that they, the other two, Thomas Marshall and James Ducat, went out with their outside gear when they normally would have been asleep resting for the night shift. Um, but it's strange that MacArthur went out or disappeared without his outside gear. So it's uh, there was no sign of any commotion. The door was closed. The gate was, there was a gate surrounding, a gate and fence that surrounded the station. He closed the gate as well. Let's get into the theories though, because there are three kind of main ones. And again, we don't have to go through them in, in granular detail because if people want to know all the details, they should read the book. But I do want to brush on them because I think you kind of highlight nicely that there's, I think, well, out of the three, there's probably two um, theories that hold the most weight with one of them certainly probably being the, the one that I lean to. But let's start with, I think, the the most sensationalized theories, which you know are fun to talk about, but maybe don't hold a lot of truth. And that's the supernatural. Can you tell me about some of the supernatural theories related to the, the Lighthouse Keepers going missing? I, I don't discount any theory, really. You know, it's uh, the thing about the supernatural is um, that that whole area uh, goes back to pre-Christian times and, and things happening. Of you know, Elon Moore itself was um, in pre-Christian times. There, there, there was uh, records of, of people being taken out there for sacrifices for sky gods. And it was also said that the the dead from Lewis, the main island there, were taken. The the dead were taken out to Elanmore and burnt on pyres on 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 uh, on top of the island uh, as offerings to the gods. And like I say, this was pre-Christian times. There's um, there's ancient records guy talking of um, hostile pig pygmy people in the in the north of Lewis. The whole the whole area is steeped in that kind of folklore. And on the, and I've been to the, the, the on the um on the main island of Lewis you've got uh, stones they're called the Kalanish stones which had ain't where ancient rituals were performed in pre Christian times. Um and there was this aspect of the the, uh, the main island, Elam Moore, being a place where the dead were taken to, and and when we went out there, I, I found it. It's um, you know you're standing. Have you ever stood in a graveyard and you get a sense of where you are? 
to me, it was. Uh, I, I thought Elon Moore was very much like that. Um, it had a, a peculiar feel to it. You know, I'm not, I'm not large enough, but just got a sense of it. And also, um, there, there was a small chapel on there, which is still there, a small stone chapel, which is big enough for somebody to crawl in and hide inside it. And, and that was used by... Um, uh, an Irish monk for for retreat and prayer, so you have this whole idea of the island being a kind of a sacred place, and one of the theories is that really the lighthouse, all the work on it, the men working there had transgressed the sanctity, you know, the sanct sanctity of, of the island, and that that's why they disappeared. That's uh, terrifying. <laughs> the way you outline that you know, when when you're out in it's one thing to you know you're in the middle of a town you know you just think oh well that's supernatural nonsense but it's something else you imagine if you're just one of three people out on this remote rock and you can't even see the the, the land that's 20 miles away it's um it's very isolating and and you know all things, sorts of things can happen. I don't do, discount anything supernatural. I, I think you have to keep a very open mind on on this, these sort of things. You know, not in the sense that say there's a ghost that might appear or whatever, but I think there are things that are unexplained so far because we try and explain everything scientifically. But I do think there are some things that haven't been explained yet. And, and uh, you know, I, I do keep a very open mind on that. That's an excellent point about about keeping an open mind. Because as you were telling me about that, yeah, you were you were making me think like, yeah, you shouldn't discount that theory entirely because we don't actually know what happened. Um, no, we don't. Yeah, no. and that's why we're talking about this. That's why there are multiple different yeah. theories. Um, yeah. The other the other major another major theory is that there was some sort of foul player murderer involved. I'm curious, can you can you walk through through that that theory as well that there there may have been something pretty horrible that happened to these men on that island? As to the men themselves being murdered by somebody else, it's it's a possibility, but it's unlikely because to get there it, it it's difficult and you must remember that the day they disappeared the weather was getting worse and worse and worse it would have been impossible for anybody to have landed on the island because where the waves were 30 feet high so for anybody wishing them you know harm they'd have, well that's not to say that they couldn't have arrived the day before or a couple of days before that and hidden out, not that there's many places you can hide, and it's uh, the, the, there's no sh shelter really there either, other than this little stone chapel, but um, again, that's an unlikely tale. I I, I think, and, and the, the, one of the, the, the theory, the people that follow the theory about the murder is that something happened between the men, and it was, if, if it did, it was almost certainly Donald MacArthur because of his volatile temper, because he'd possibly been pushed to the limit of he wasn't he didn't know how long he was going to be there for, and um, he was worried about his family and and his croft on the mainland. Oh, oh, sorry, on the main island, and um, he may he also been an occasional would have been the dog's body. He would have had to do all the, all the the, the hard work, and which is what an occasional was taken on for. Uh, so it, it could have been that he just snapped. 
and did away with the men, the other two, and then realising what he'd done, that he, he would hang for murder of two people at their jobs, you know, in important jobs, he, he probably realised he'd be hanged as well, sir, and just called, you know, decided to do away with himself. But it's, again, just a theory. Yeah, yeah, and it's like you said, it's the, I think if there is any credence to that theory, it, it would have probably had to have been something that happened amongst the men, like you said. It would be pretty difficult for an outside ship or boat to think about, and what would be the motive, you know, to, to try and risk your own life to dock on this remote island to harm these three men. So I think that's a really, really good point that you bring up. Um, the final theory that you bring up uh, that I wanted to talk about was the giant wave theory. And I think for those listening who, you know, want to base uh, maybe their theories in a bit more science, this is probably the theory that they'll um, be drawn to the most. Can you tell me about the, the giant wave theory? Well, that's the one, you know, when, when people say, well, it's obviously a wave, but to me, it isn't necessarily obviously a wave. Uh, the, the things, well, just going on about the wave, yes, there were big waves hitting the uh, the western side of, of the of the island with the, the West Landing. Um, and, and the theory is that the, the three men were taken, all taken by a, a large wave. But then, you, you, the, the, uh, sorry, just before I go on to the next step there, Walter, there was a gentleman, a lightkeeper, who was based on the Flannans in the 1950s, whose name was Walter Alderbert, and he was the one who came up with the theory. Uh, he was looking down at the West Landing, and his view was that a giant wave had taken one of the men and... Uh, and by one of the men, we're talking Ducat or Marshall, because they had their outside gear on. One of them had gone into the water. The one that was left, was who was either Ducat or Marshall, ran back up to the lighthouse, got Thomas Marshall, who was inside, and said, so-and-so's in the water, we've got to help get him out. And that's why MacArthur left his jacket on and, and ran out and the two of them went down and then they too fell in but the trouble with that is you've got one giant wave that takes one of them and then you're expecting another giant wave to come along and take the other two I can't imagine with 30 foot waves that people with the experience of um Ducat, uh, you know, had spent all his life in the lighthouse service, and Thomas Marshall, who'd already spent some time as, as a lighthouse keeper, that they experienced men would have allowed themselves to have got into a position where they would have been taken by a wave or one of them. Um, it, it just doesn't sound right. But the other thing about it is. is the, what they were doing on the Westland. Now, I've been, when I went on to the Flannans, we went up the Westland on the same steps that they would have been on. The, the Part of the talk was that there was a box of ropes that they had to secure. And I've seen the location of that, that, that box, and it's 110 feet above sea level. So it would have needed a gigantic wave to have got up to that. Even the seventy-five foot waves probably would have would have made it up there, but it, it, but that those seventy-five foot waves didn't come until 
two days later where the, the, the waves that were there were big enough. But even if there'd been an odd big one had come up to the 110 feet, grabbed Ducat or, or Thomas Marshall, dragged him back, and, and the remaining man had gone and got MacArthur, it would have needed another big wave to have come and taken the two of them. Uh, I don't. It, it's it's certainly the probably I dare I say it the most plausible theory, but there's a lot of there's a lot of argument against it as well. Uh, to me, it doesn't quite ring true. Thank you for walking me through those theories. What do you think then? Like you've been there, you've stood on the final, like you've stood on Eileen Moore, and you've you know been there. Like what goes through your head? Like what do, what do you think happened, or or is it? Still, there is no clear answer or evidence. Like even after all this time you've spent with the story and being there in person, I, I hate to have to say it. <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the the to me the giant wave theory is too too too, um, too easy to to explain it. Uh, I, I think something happened to them, and uh, but I don't know what. That's the problem. Um, one thing I will say, and I haven't mentioned it before, is it's difficult to try and describe it in words. The actual lighthouse itself uh, is on the very top. It's a funny, it's, it's, it is a giant rock, but it it's kind of comes out of the water for 150 feet, and then it slopes upwards to where the actual lighthouse is. And it's at the top of the island, and it's 280 feet above sea level. But one thing I noticed when I was there is if you stand at that lighthouse, you're only about 10 or 15 feet away from a, a, a literally a nearly 300-foot drop straight down from it. And I, I was discussing this with um, my good friend who's sadly passed now who was the lighthouse keeper and he wasn't stationed on the flannons but you know i showed him all the photographs he wonders if the three of them either had an altercation outside which went outside and they were possibly working on a, a ramp where the steam trolleys were and it was only just a short few steps to that massive drop on the other side and of course if they all went over there and he said the winds were high as well there's very high winds the winds may have caught them and taken all three men over and that's quite plausible that is plausible i i wouldn't like to, you know it's difficult to say because when people say oh it's obviously a giant wave it's not the other thing i should mention about the giant wave is it was um a serious offence for a lighthouse to be left unmanned. Uh, so if what Walter Alderbert was saying, although it's, you could say it's a matter of life and death, but for a man to go up and get the other one, leaving the lighthouse unmanned would have been considered a very serious offence. The superintendent would have probably said, that whoever had gone in, the man remaining, should have done his best to get him out, not go and get... Well, which is what happened, because the lighthouse was unmanned for nearly two weeks. Uh, you know, the, 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 the light wasn't on, which was an even greater risk to shipping. So that, that's another argument against the, you know, the, 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 the giant wave. It was a, it was a very, you know, well, a virtual sackable offence to leave a lighthouse unmanned. 
if if it had come to light what the, what had happened and they'd survived. Um, uh, uh, the the only other serious offence to that was what they called to leave the light standing, which was the failure uh, to maintain the light turning round. Uh, you know, so that the ships could see it. If if the light wasn't turning, in other words, it was standing, was an instant dismissal. So, uh, and they took those rules quite seriously. So that's another reason that argue, I argue against the, the giant wave theory that I doubt Mar- uh, MacArthur would have left the lighthouse. There, there was a lot of bad luck attached to anything to do with uh, what after the men disappeared. Joseph Moore, um, who was the man, he was the relief keeper and he was the one who went up to the, the lighthouse and found them all missing. He said from that day forward, he had never had anything but bad luck. You know, he apparently had relatives die and, you know, close relatives. Uh, he, just, he just said his life was just one long run of bad luck. Um, the, and the ship that passed the night, uh, on the night of the 15th when they disappeared, there was a ship passed it called the Arch Tor, who saw, they saw the light wasn't working that night because they'd all disappeared. That hit a rock. That was on its way to Leith, which is the port for Edinburgh. 48 hours later, after passing that rock, it hit a, uh, after passing the lighthouse, it hit a rock and just managed to limp into port. And they, they forgot to, because of what had happened to the ship, it was leaking badly and nearly sank, that, uh, they omitted to tell the Northern Lighthouse Board that, the, you know, the, the lighthouse wasn't working. It was only when it came to light that the men had disappeared that they then, the shipping company then contacted them to say, look, you know, we're, the ship passed by that night and found it wasn't, the light wasn't working. But because it nearly sank, we had our hands full. And then that ship, 12 years later, disappeared without trace. So uh, in the north, in the Atlantic somewhere, nobody knows what happened to it. And there was uh, the William Ross, who event, who was MacArthur had replaced. Uh, he eventually came back to work after his shoulder had healed. He dropped dead a year later uh, in another lighthouse. And um, and one of the reliefs for the who took over working, not the relief, but one of the men who replaced. The, one of the missing men who just, you know, they carried on as normal afterwards. He was killed within four years of starting at, at the lighthouse of the Flannans as well. He fell from the tower. So there, there was quite a fair bit of bad luck associated with it as well. interested in reading The Lighthouse, The Mystery of the Eileen Moore Lighthouse Keepers, or any of Keith's other books, please check out the description of the podcast. I want to thank Keith again for coming on the podcast, and I hope he returns in the future. If you enjoyed this episode and want to show appreciation, you can buy me a coffee at the link in the description. If you want to support the podcast on a monthly basis, you can head to the Patreon. For $5 a month, you get ad and sponsor free episodes, exclusive content, and early access to all new episodes of the podcast. If you don't want to spend any money, I totally understand. You can still support the podcast by leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Also, you can find the podcast on social on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to the Missing and Unexplained Podcast.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.